Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest is a master's graduate spending the last 20 years in and around the sports industry, starting off with NCAA athletics, transitioning to the team side of the NFL, and now has since grown on the placement side, helping sports executives grow their career, while also teaching students as alma mater of Drexel University, now a partner at Prodigy Search. Today, we welcome Mark Gress Jr. to the program. Brett, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, excited to have this conversation. So for those of uh, our listeners here that aren't familiar with Mark Rest Jr., can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from originally? Sure, a Philly guy. Uh, I have an Eagles coffee mug, so if I'm parched in between answers, I'll, you know, people have to get a glimpse of that. If they're, if they're not an Eagles fan, I apologize, but we're still basking in the globe, our one Super Bowl uh, in, in 60 years. Uh, a Philly guy, high school and college in the area. Um, went to Drexel, as you said, for my undergrad and graduate school. Um, a middle child of an older brother and younger brother, so I have a lot of middle child issues and things to still work out even, even you know, 40 year, nearly 40 years later in my life. Um, but wife, two boys, uh, my wife's a CPA, which means uh, she's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, two boys, uh, Mark the third and, uh, and Matthew. So, um, so that's just a little bit about me. been a prodigy for, I guess this is year six, going on year seven right now. Oh, wow. So early on in life, you know, I know there's no lack of passion being a sports fan in Philadelphia, but where did you personally grow that passion there first for sports? You know, I think about some of the little things, right? This is where you, when you, when you recollect a little bit, right? My dad was always reading the sports section of the newspaper. I would think about that. He would leave it in unique places of the house, but always in the kitchen table. I remember picking up and like, well, there's a specific section of the newspaper dedicated just to this industry, right? And that was stats and that was transactions. It wasn't about the business, which you and I have come to, to love and enjoy. Um, but he and I, you know, love baseball, love golf, you know, started playing, I remember started playing 18 holes when I was, you know, young, seven, eight years old, right, which was not very well, but um, we started playing, you know, certain sports at a young age. Older brother was into football. I remember went, you know, to Eagles training camps, met players, got autographs. So I just, I kind of was, you know, just like all of us, right, started playing, started watching, going to games. Um, but the whole family was in sports, playing, watching, whatever it may be. Um, but I think about actually one experience that, that I, I, I didn't always give as an answer to this question, whether it was on job interviews or interviews on podcasts. Um, my uncle, Nick, was actually um, an employee of the Buffalo Bills. He was a, I think his title was producer. He was a producer on the Jim Kelly show back in the 90s uh, when Jim Kelly had his weekly show on Saturdays or Sundays. I can't remember what it was, but I didn't think about it at the time, but now looking back on it, I was probably amazed by the fact that that was a job, that was a career. Like he got paid to produce a weekly TV show with a Hall of Fame quarterback. So um, that was kind of some of the initial beginnings of where this whole passion or interest in sports business or the sports just as, as a spectator and consumer came to be. And not only was Jim Kelly a quarterback, he was in the class of quarterback. So there were some high expectations there. <laughs> this is very true. And before we get into more of the professional side of your life, you know, being from Philadelphia, Geno's or Pats? So I'm a Geno's guy, um, and I know that that's a, it's a it's a debate that that, that uh, goes on for many years. And and those are the two tourist spots. Um, but I think the uh, locals that hate on the tourist spots, I I put like, listen, you go to Geno's or Pats, enjoy your cheesesteak. This isn't you don't need to stick your nose up at um, at it. Um, there are plenty of other hidden gems in the area. 
but uh, I scoff at the notion when I travel elsewhere and I read, I open up a menu and it's a Philly cheesesteak on the menu. I kind of laugh at it and uh, I'll try though. I'll, I'll give it a, give it a whirl. And outside of Philly, they don't use the cheese whiz the way they do it in Philly. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. The, the bread is always, you'll hear, here's the Philadelphia snobbery. It's always about the bread, uh, but you won't find cheese whiz anywhere else for better or worse. <laughs> so, you know, you talked earlier, we mentioned earlier, right, going to Drexel uh, for school, you know, for undergrad, you know, what provoked you to stay there and go for graduate? Great question. I, I think some of the things that crossed my mind were career advancement, right? People think about getting getting additional degrees based on uh, based on furthering the career, bigger titles, more money, uh, whatever that may be. Um, so career advancement crossed my mind. Um, I was a full-time employee there, so let, let's also just cat out of the bag. It also didn't cost me anything to get my master's degree, but I had debated, truthfully, even prior to working as an employee there, whether I want to further my uh, education. But deep down, it was also the ability to teach classes as an adjunct professor while I was a full-time employee somewhere else. So I wanted to teach. In order to teach as an adjunct, I needed an advanced degree. I couldn't just have my, my bachelor's degree. Um, but it was also, I'll say this, one of the unique things was that it was also in a different degree and different field than my undergraduate, more or less, right? So my undergraduate, I was the first person to complete their undergraduate degree in sport management. So Drexel's sport management program just came along the last 20 years. It hasn't been around for a really long time. Um, but when I graduated with that undergrad in sport management, I spoke to a number of different people, undergraduate advisors, graduate advisors, friends. They said, don't get that master's degree in sport management. Go after your MBA, get your master's in education, communications, whatever it is, like go and get that to graduate degree in something else. So I got my, my graduate degree in, in education in order to teach, but my concentration was in sport management. So I still took graduate level sport management classes um, that were a little bit of a notch up than the undergrad courses, but my core focus was in education. It's interesting you say that because me looking to go for my master's now, I'm looking at business analytics and other areas that maybe support the 15 plus years of job experience already that you, you know, might be almost past what you're going to learn in some of those sports classes. I think, I think people that have the work experience in our industry and are interested in going and getting their master's degree in sport management, I would only offer this suggestion. Find a program that's different or will teach you something different or build out your network different than what you have already gained in your 10 or 15 or 20 years of your career. Otherwise, go get the MBA. Go get something else that's a little bit different. It's not a knock on any graduate sport management program right now, even, even OU, right? So even if that was an interest, I would say, well, what, what's that different than the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of your career that you're going to get from your network? You might be able to, I had somebody tell me this the other day, so this isn't you, Brett, but somebody told me, hey, I could teach some of those classes and I couldn't disagree with that person, right? So going back and saying, well, I'm going to go get my degree from, from somebody, from a professor that I'm equal to, it's a fair point. Right, the same way in work as in school, you want to be challenged and you want to learn and grow. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, um, what was your, I guess, your biggest takeaway from that to help you in your professional life? I think one of the things that um, I wasn't particularly great about as an undergrad, I, I was okay as an undergrad, but the graduate degree, the master's degree helped me in my ability to research and dig for information. Um, but I also think I think perhaps it helped me with my writing skills. It helped improve my writing skills tremendously. And I, I attribute both of those things to the professors in my, my master's program, but also my classmates. And I, I think those are two things that as I teach graduate students right now, those are the two things I want them to get really, by the time you graduate, improve your writing skills, be much better communicating, but also dig and research. And I'm not the best even, I'll admit this, the best academic researcher, although that's what you need to do when you get your master's or your PhD. 
but look beyond the surface. Like I can go on Wikipedia or I can Google information about the sports business, but look at three or four other areas, you know, and, and dig deeper, Be, go beyond the undergraduate. Like think about the difference between undergrad and graduate is going beyond the surface. It's interesting you mentioned the writing piece because I wish I can go back 20 years and, and write the way I write now. School would have been a lot different. It's amazing, right? And, and I, I, I remember, <laughs> I joke about right now using a red pen, which sounds funny. Um, not that we always print a million things in Prodigy, but uh, I joke, I had to use a, I had to go back into our supply closet this week for a new red pen and a couple of staff members laughed at me. But I think about, I think it was my parents. I think it was about professors that, you know, the red pen, well, they were helping me get better. Like they were helping me improve. It wasn't looking back on it. I regret if I ever gave any of them hard time but it was looking to improve improve me as a writer and on that note nothing's better than printing something out and actually having it in front of you without technology to distract very true <laughs> so um you know i guess early on you know one of your first opportunities was working in operation in, in drexel at drexel you know how did that opportunity first come about you know, it's it started through relationships, right? I, I gained that through working as a part-time employee, and it evolved into something more than that. And and I think throughout our conversation today, I'll probably reference relationships and networking because I think it's good to talk about those words or phrases when you can put an example behind them. Well, I landed that through proving myself as a part-time employee. Um, I wasn't handed the job. The job wasn't posted. It wasn't, you know, I, I don't even think I was the best interviewer at that time, but I landed it through grinding it out, being a great part-time employee, making an hourly wage, and it just kind of evolved into that, that operations role in athletics. Right, similar to anyone else that talks about an internship or something to cut your teeth and improve yourself within an organization at any capacity. Absolutely. Yep. And then, you know, what did that, I guess, you know, for that full-time role, what did that first full-time role look like? Yeah. So it, it was, it was all of the athletic facilities. Uh, so it was building operations, venue operations. Um, I would say what that entailed or included recreation, intramurals, club sports, anything non-varsity sports, basically, right. Is the best way I describe it. Right. So anything, but even varsity sports, I, my interactions with the coaches or the uh, director of basketball operations um, was interfacing with them to make sure we had practice times scheduled, social logistics, practice times, game time set up so that I knew I had to close certain facilities down when it was a game night, right? Or when there was a tournament happening, you know, if the wrestling team was having a tournament, well, I knew we had to shut down certain recreation parts of the, of the venues and facilities around campus so that it was, you know, addressing the needs of our varsity sports and athletics. So venue and facility operations might be the best way to describe it. Staffing, uh, oversaw and managed staff as well, um, but definitely a, a building operations type of, to simplify type of job. And how did the, you know, maybe the foundational aspect of that job or the principles in your work ethic, how did that help you, you know, evolve and really set the precedence or for maybe your future work life? You know, Great question. I think part of part of that we joked about the Philly thing earlier, so I don't want to overemphasize this. Listen, I'm 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 a white collar. I'm, I'm educated white collar. I get that, but I think a lot of that is blue collar roots, right? My mom doesn't have a college degree. My dad went to school has an associate's degree. So so I'm you know I didn't come from two parents that are you know highly educated, but they both my dad and, and my mom both of them eventually you know had you know white collar jobs, salary jobs in in different uh, industry. But I think there's a blue collar mentality kind of under that, right? Grind it out, a lot of hours on your feet, working with many different stakeholders, you know, so I, need, I needed to be able to adapt between the janitor at our facilities and the athletic director and also the wealthy, wealthy donor that would come in or the, uh, there were many, you know, uh, prominent Drexel alumni that played in athletics in professional worlds, but let's say Michael Anderson and Malik Rose showed up to the facility. I know how to deal with them, but I also need, need to know how to deal with, you know, the janitor that worked overnight or the security guard that worked overnight. So 
I think that was it. But it was a lot of work. It was not a lot of glamour. Um, it wasn't a lot of prestige. That's fine. I, I'm again. I mentioned um, I'm a middle child, right? So I'm more behind the scenes guy anyway. I'd rather be the VP than than the president, right? So put me behind the scenes. Let me get the work done. And you know, at this point in your career, where did you see yourself long term? Um, you know, college athletics was one of my top choices. I, 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 um, I, I also actually, I think a career regret of mine is that I didn't, the only thing I hadn't really done, I had never worked in minor league sports, never worked at an agency, but I worked on, and we'll get to the pro sports side, but worked in college athletics. I really like college athletics, but, um, I didn't think I had enough experiences at that point to re realize whether that I wanted to be an AD or whether I wanted to be a development person or uh, senior associate AD. I just didn't think I needed other options. I needed to try other things. Um, and, and by the way, it, I, I regret maybe that being something I ruled out so quickly because there are a ton of jobs in college athletics. Like people don't think about that because people often think, well, power five or division one, you know, football, um, they don't think about division two, II, division three, division, what used to be division one, double A, Ivy leagues, Patriot league. Like there, there's a ton of, uh, college athletic, you know, jobs and, and college conference jobs that are out there to be had. And, and, you know, perhaps it was just short-sighted of me. I gave it a shot, liked it a lot, had great bosses, just wanted to try something different. Yeah, it's interesting too, because the more we learn in the space, you know, these deputy ADs and even the people dealing with a lot of the roles we're talking about on a daily basis, you know, these are some really sought after positions and, you know, some really tenured people that even come from the pro space for that matter. Absolutely, 100%. Right. Um, so uh, at this point, you know, you start to transition, right? You move into premium services with the Eagles. I'm sure there was some kind of passion play to that being a team that you grew up watching, but you know, how was that role different for you, you know, on the professional team side versus collegiate previously? Yeah. Um, and, and I, it's funny, you mentioned the passion thing. And I, I go back and forth um, to indirectly answer your question and I'll get directly to your question in a moment. I, I, I always think about the interviews I had for that job and, and it was a long time ago, so I don't remember every part of it, but I, I think I did need to curb that passion a little bit, but I, I also think people in our industry right now, uh, I often hear, you know, staying away from that on the interview. And I, I think there's a lot of validity to that. I get it. You don't want to be rah-rah. You know, I shouldn't have shown up to that interview and I didn't with an Eagles tie on or Eagles cufflinks, right? But, I, you know, it's okay to be passionate about a sport you're working in or at a team you're working in, but you have to, that can't dominate the conversation, right? And because I think about searches we've done at Prodigy, which we may get into, that we're in, uh, that we're in the golf world or for MMA or soccer, um, and, and again, maybe there's a certain part of that that's on the peripheral um, of the big four, quote unquote, that it's okay to be passionate about or you played for it. Um, you played in that area or your kids, you know, played that. It's okay to talk about the connections to that sport, by the way, just that's a complete sidebar. Um, but the differences between the Eagles and, and college athletics, or at least at Drexel, the Eagles had more resources. Um, they also had more attention paid to them, right? So therefore more pressure dealing with fans, dealing with customers. Um, you know, I, I remember some of the aspects of that job. I, I was working in premium sales and premium services, more on the service side, but but there were aspects of sales uh, on the premium side. And that was when Lincoln Financial Field opened up. And I didn't, I was there during when we moved over from Veterans Stadium to Lincoln Financial Field. But a lot of the job that entailed, that, that my, my role and duties and responsibilities entailed were dealing with the suite holders and the club seat holders. So very wealthy individuals, very prominent people. Um, you know, remember, I, you know, I remember one time I had a call, um, Donovan McNabb's mom because Donovan was a sweet holder. Right. So I had to call his mom the day after a game. And at first I thought she was going to call her ID me, um, she didn't, she didn't call. 
but very apprehensive about why the heck I was calling her and, and, and Wilma, right? You know, Miss McNabb, you know, I'm just calling to check in on how your experience was. Does, was the parking okay? Did you get in your suite okay? Was it easy navigating? Was the food and beverage all right? Um, how was the security getting into the, you know, to the venue? What about exiting? How was the egress, the ingress, you know? So, it, you know, it was, um, it was a different type of job, but, you know, very high profile, right? The glitz and glamour of working for the number one team in town also came with high expectations. That, and you're probably talking about like 10, 10 key dates to shine versus a Drexel, something going on every day. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right, and what, what would you say you enjoyed most about that opportunity? Um, that was the first real, that was the first real time to learn about the business, right? I, and learn about the business of sport, right? Seeing the inner workings. Um, listen, I, I loved having, we can talk about this, right? I, I think people that don't talk about, you know, their definitions of culture, you know, everybody's got, well, the definitions of culture aren't, that I get, um, you know, um, every other Friday off or I get a free lunch or I get tickets to the game, the culture, whatever you want to make it. Right. So I love going to the office every day at Lincoln Financial Field. My office was at the, at the stadium. Um, I love eating lunch, you know, two tables over from Dawkins and McNabb and, and Westbrook. And I think one day the table next to me, um, I know he, he passed away, but Reggie White was a few tables. And so again, it was great. Those things were cool. It was okay to have, enjoy your job, but but honestly, the real answer was learning about how every department worked, uh, how they interacted with each other, how they collaborated with each other. I, I learned the business and that was from other people teaching me how the business uh, and, and a lot of people that have since moved on to a lot of different jobs since then uh, throughout our industry that I, I learned a lot from. And who was taller, you or Brian Westbrook? Uh, I'm about the same height, about five eight, five nine. Yeah, about, about the same height. <laughs> so, you know, who would you say at that point in your career had the biggest impact on it? Um, at that time, and I'd again, still a prominent person. I, and again, he would probably scoff at the notion that he's a mentor of mine. Cause I don't, I'm not big into titles or making things official. Like, Oh, you're a mentor. But at that time and still now, um, guy named Jim Heim and Jim most recently. Um, so Jim was, was a, was a guy who was part of the vet, uh, veteran stadium opened up the link. And then after, you know, I'm not sure how long he was at, at the Eagles, 10 or 15 years, somewhere around there spent the last, I would say seven to 10 years, this is rough math, by the way, um, at, at the New York Roadrunners, where he was most recently, I think, senior vice president of events, which means he was kind of the number two in charge and uh, did all the operations and event operations, game, kind of game day operations for all of the New York City Marathon, but every other major race in New York City. So Jim was, was, you know, was and perhaps still has a huge impact on my career. And if you can go back to this time in your life or this time in your career, call it, you know, is there anything you would have done differently? Um, I, I, I did mention I regret not um, not trying minor league sports or even the agency world. I regret not trying more in the sales world, though you and I can talk about how my jobs in the past and my present job is very much in sales. Um, but I do regret maybe not not trying those things. I, I think back when I was out of, coming out of college, I was offered a few jobs. I joked, joked with staff members the other day about this. Um, that I was offered a job in minor league sports selling uh, group tickets for a minor league baseball team. Uh, and I was also offered a job selling uh, radio advertisements. Uh, both of those jobs were either near or close to 100% commission jobs. And I think I would have learned a tremendous amount from both of those jobs. I'm not sure if I would have been great at either of them, to be honest with you, but I do regret not trying either of them. And then, um, you know, while you're working in uh, football, right, you know, you started your transition at one point, you know, uh, into recruiting, right, into the placement area, you know, back then with Turnkey, now Turnkey ZRG, of course, you know, how did, how did recruiting or the placement world become an opportunity for you? 
Yeah, um, none of us went, I joke about this back in the turnkey days and it still applies now at Prodigy. None of us went to school, you know, for, for HR recruiting by and large. Like it was a very, like there might've been one person that got their degree in, in, in HR or recruiting. Um, networking relationships, it came about again through somebody I knew. People always talk about those words, but when it comes to fruition, you can say, oh, that's what networking means. So a good industry friend of mine was working at turnkey, knew I was looking I uh, got my resume in the right hands and he helped me uh, with an interview. Um, I, and I don't think I had the best resume for that job, Brett. I mean, it was, it was a solid resume, but not the best. Right. So, so his endorsement helped and went a long way, but I think to a certain extent, my, um, my one sales pitch on that interview was actually transferable skills, which I talk about. Maybe I, maybe I tweet or put on LinkedIn too much about transferable skills, but at the Eagles, right. Part of my job was speaking with, and I alluded to this earlier, speaking with calling, meeting in person with wealthy business owners, CEOs, affluent individuals, uh, and key decision makers. And, 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 and from a service perspective, seeing how their experiences were. But my point on that interview with Turnkey was you can trust me and put me on the phone with or, or a, a video call with a team or a league executive and not worry about it. Now that said, you need to train the heck out of me on, on how to recruit. Like I didn't know how to recruit. I didn't know how to, you know, interview people and, and negotiate salaries. I needed to learn and be taught those things. I could, I could speak and read, you know, I could read people. I could understand, uh, I could understand them and, and I could um, dialogue with them, but I didn't know how to recruit. So I needed to be taught those things. And what would you say was the biggest learning curve at the time, right? Helping people find their next step versus being a candidate in most cases. <laughs> I, I think part of, I think part of what still is a challenge, even all these years later, what it is and was at that time, recruiting passive job seekers is difficult, right? You're, you're selling them on something, a new title, more money, more responsibilities, a change of scenery, um, new culture, whatever it is, right? But, but they have a job, right? So they don't need a job. Um, so you're selling somebody in theory, you don't call it selling, but we're headhunting, whatever word you wanna use on something that, that they don't necessarily need, right? Now, a part of that learning experience, the learning curve for me right now, I still think about some experiences even on a daily basis is uh, that understanding that my favorite part of recruiting was and still is the human element. I love people. I love talking to people, emailing with them, meeting them in person, going to conferences, networking events. I do love people. But dealing with people on the other side is the human element is very challenging too, right? You're you know, at the 11th hour, we might have somebody that says, well, I want to cancel the interview because of X, right? Or um, I don't want to get on the plane and, and start my first day tomorrow morning because I'm, I'm getting cold feet or my kid, you know, I don't want to pull them from, from school. Um, by the way, all those things are, are fine reasons and there's no issues at all with those, those reasons. Um, and frankly, the last year probably has increased even more reasons, right? I don't, don't want to relocate and go to an office full time, right? I like remote working and and so the factors that come up with the human element um, that are out of our control are still something I'm learning about every day. Yeah, I was going to say from the conversations I have with all the kids in the Florida schools and recruiting, even outside the sports space, I can't think of an industry that has more variables than recruiting people. Absolutely. You're 100% right. correct. <laughs> so um, can you share a success story with us early on, whether that's maybe acquiring a, a client job or it's you know placing someone early on in this role? I, uh, if I can give you two, I, I, you know, I think, I think there's two, but, but they both stand out for different reasons, to be honest with you. Um, and they're both placements of mine. I, I wouldn't say I did a ton of, 
uh, early on in my career, I didn't do a ton of business development. I, and by that, I mean, I didn't bring a lot of clients to Turnkey at that time. That was my boss's responsibility. And and, and again, and I say that, that that sounds terrible, but that wasn't what I was tasked with doing. Like my job was, listen, do, recruit, recruit, like do, do your job, fill positions, place people, right? Um, but but two of them are placements. I, I led or co-led or worked alongside, but I, I, I think I led it uh, with a you know, great boss of mine, Dan Rosetti, who you know, well, but I think I led the search for, she at that time was Deirdre Ganon. She's now Deirdre Lester. Uh, we placed her at Major League Baseball Advanced Media and she's now the Chief Revenue Officer at Barstool. And she's absolutely amazing. Love Deirdre, um, incredibly talented um, and, and accomplished, you know, media, digital seller um, and just in, in general, a great, great revenue person. The other one actually is Don Rovac, and, and he's with the Atlanta Falcons, and you may know Don as well as Deirdre, but I, the reason that's, I, I'm so uh, happy about that one, again, worked with Dan, worked with our team at Turnkey, I'm not, this is not an individual accolade here, but Don's been there since 2007, like he, he's the VP of sales and service for the Atlanta, Atlanta Falcons, and he's a well-respected guy, and he's just a stud, he's been there for 13, I don't know, whatever the math is on that, 13, 14 years, so great run. That's awesome. And, um, you know, what else do you feel like, um, I, you know, I guess being in a role on the placement side, you know, how does maybe helping people, and this doesn't just go with that, right? It goes with teaching and other things, you know, how does helping people transform you both personally and professionally? You know, I, I referenced my parents earlier and I just kind of re bring it back to that. I, I, I guess I get part of it from them, right? They were always, they were always helping people, right? Always bettering people. Neither of them were recruiters or in HR. So it wasn't the career path part. Like, I didn't get that from them, but you know, that was part of their makeup, their attitude, just being two selfless people. And I probably owe so much to the candidates I've placed and the clients, um, even, even now, probably that trust us, right? It's about kind of faith and respect and not faith and religious, but faith and respect and, and trust in each other. Um, but I, I told a candidate recently that, um, yes, the employers are client and they're paying us, but I want to win-win. I want you to be successful, be happy and be there a long time. Like, I don't have to do the search again in six months because Prodigy sold you a bill of goods or Mark misled me, right? So I always want the client to be happy, the employer that's bringing our people on to be helpful. But, but I do want that person to know that when they move, that, that, that their family's okay, that, that they're there. Uh, and I'm going to check in with them as often as I can, but without being a thorn in their side, just to make sure, hey, are you good? You know, and that's, that, that's maybe, you know, kind of handed down from, uh, from your parents. And it's tough on your side too, being a third party. I mean, there's things that you don't know about organizations you work with, both good and bad, right? Someone yeah. can call you up and say, hey, I'm excited about this. I, you had no idea. And at the same time, hey, you know, this has been a challenge for me and I'm doing my best to work through it now. You know, we try so to be transparent. Like, I, I think that the thing is, because I had, you know, over the years, technology is either you know, pro and con here, right? But um, over the years, I, and I think the last couple of years, I heard a couple of times where a candidate would say, well, I looked them up on Glassdoor. I'm like, listen, first of all, ignore those websites. But if you do want to call around and ask people and, and, and check it out, you should absolutely do that. And by the way, I'll try to be as transparent as possible in telling you about the culture and the challenges there. And ultimately, if you accept the job still, that's on you. Like at a certain point, it's got to be on you, right? And, and um, but it, it, yeah, listen, I'm not there every day. Whoever the client is, the Yankees or Rock Nation or the PGA Tour, the UFC, I'm not there every day. So I can't tell you what it's like to work for Dana White or whomever. But, you know, again, ask around, be, you know, do your due diligence before taking the job. I'll try my best to also let you pull the curtain back and let you in behind the scenes. And, you know, we talk, I talked a little bit, you know, there about, you know, teaching, right? Um, so I know over the years you've been able to teach at Drexel. You mentioned that was part of the reason also you wanted to go to grad school to have the ability to do that. You know, how is helping those young minds to make an impact in the industry? You know, and, you know how has that been? 
you know, I, I've learned a lot from the master students that I've taught. Um, perhaps, perhaps more, you know, more for them. I, you know, it, it's new ideas. It's a fresh approach. It's questioning why the industry does certain things. Like I think about, you know, my, the class I teach for the last, I've been teaching for the last eight years is a first semester, uh, first class they get at a master's in sport management, right? So they're getting their master's in sport management from Drexel. And I'm kind of like sport business 101. That's not the name of the class, but it's kind of like sport business 101. And when they question me, it's not questioning my knowledge or how I'm, you know, kind of presenting something to them. It's questioning, well, why does that team do that? Or why does that league do it that way? And, and I have to kind of think, well, and sometimes it's rhetorical, but then it makes me kind of take a step and like, I really don't know why they do it that way. It's kind of the, it's, well, we've always done it this way type of thing. So, um, so that's part of it. But, um, and I won't keep on referencing my parents. My mom was in education for many years. And I always think about that, you know, both parties can learn from each other. Like I think about professors that I have, I think maybe they've learned from me, I've learned from them. But one of my former students from two years ago, um, he, he became my, my TA last fall and he's just incredibly talented. I taught him I think two years ago and then last year he became my TA, a guy named Barrett Snyder. Smart, passionate, uh, wants to know everything about the business. Like, so he'll ask me a million questions but also do a ton of research and he'll make my life as a professor much easier. You know, and then, you know, you mentioned there kind of like the way people do things, right? And I think we talk about getting different experience, right? You know, being in different places for a period of time to learn. And as those students go off and get those different experiences, they're going to understand that. I go in there and there's my way of doing it. But for me to grow, there's also a way to learn from the way a certain organization does it. Yeah. I think questioning, you know, I think about the students that I, and again, it applies to our career, to your point, career applies to your career, applies to my career. You know, students weren't always questioning grades um, because that, the result is what it is. And, you know, they, they, but I think they were questioning because they want to understand better, right? They want to understand expectations. So I've had to try to be better at communicating, be much more clear, be much more transparent. Um, I, and this goes for every sport management degree that's out there, by the way. And our industry also isn't brain surgery. I think sometimes we, we think it is. And, I, and I, I know you need to be very smart and intelligent. You need to work very hard in our industry. But getting a master's degree in sport management is not brain surgery. You still, but you need to do the work. You need to put in, you need to put in the work. So, um, you need to, again, you need to do the research. You need to ask the questions. You need to work on the writing, writing and reading skills, all the things we've already talked about today. The same thing goes with, like, recruiting isn't brain surgery either, but you need to learn, you need to become educated, and you need to put in the time to do it. Um, we're not, I know we're not doctors, you know, we're not curing cancer, but our job is still very important and you still do need to work at it. And talking about working at it, can you share maybe a specific instance or example where your students challenge you? Yeah, I think one of the things I've done over the last eight years teaching this class is our assignments aren't, none of my assignments are memorizing true and false multiple choice. I don't do any of that. There's no memorization, right? There's no, there's no regurgitating of information, but one of the final assignments that we do, um, it's, it's, it's a presentation that I ask them to give individually. I'm not a big group project guy, but I understand professors that love group projects, but I give them assignments to choose from and they're all current event based topics. So I give them things about um, name image likeness, right? That's an assignment. I give them, all right, if you're the, the owner of the, the formerly the Redskins and it's, and they're pres you know, pressuring you to change the name, you know, why would you change it? Why wouldn't you change it and come up with the reasons and explanation and show you don't. So the challenging that the students have come to me with is with harder issues. Like they've come to me and say, listen, I love the topics you've presented to us um, that, that we can choose from. And, and I actually had this last semester, um, somebody came to me and said um, that they, want, they wanted to present on the pros and cons of the protests that were happening in professional sports. And, and then they took it a step further and said, I'd also like to explore how sponsors can work with the organizations or the athletes 
um, in making it more than just a kneeling during the anthem type of thing, right? So the student came to me and said, here's what I want to do. Here's why I want to do it. I want this to be my term paper, term presentation paper that I do the entire 10 week semester. I'm like, great, done. Ignore the other topics I suggested, run with that one. And in that particular case, you don't feel like with, you know, within the university, there was an issue to probe into that a little bit more. Than no, I'm like, oh, no, because I, I and I actually wanted and I knew and I, I, I asked what I asked the students to do when they when they, if they present something other than a topic that I want them to present on for their final assignment is explain the rationale. And let me make sure that, by the way, you've never presented this in any other forum before, by the way, because I've caught one in eight years where I knew that got presented in a different class that was not mine. And I was like, okay, now I know why you want to do it because you already had it teed up. The presentation was ready to go and you just needed to change it to Professor Mark Grass Jr. and you didn't in the date, you know? So um, I love the topic. The student did phenomenal in it. They did a great job in it. That's great. That's like when you go to a new team and you repurpose your suite plan and just change the name <laughs> on the front. <laughs> the decks are slightly modified. That's yeah, hey, this, this framework looks very familiar. Yeah, the call <laughs> script is just insert team name here all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> so now for the last six years, uh, you know, you've been making an impact in the continual growth of, of what we call now Prodigy Search, right? Um, you know, how has that been so far? I've loved the run here. Um, you know, Scott, Scott's been a great boss and leader. You know, Kevin, Megan, I know you know some of our team members and great teammates over the years. We, you know, at our peak, uh, at our largest, I'll get to that later. We were, we were much larger than we are right now. But, but I, the longest tenured people I've worked with, Kevin, Megan, and Scott, all for the last six, seven years, we've all been here for a really long time. We've only been around for 13 years. So the four of us have been here half of that time. And, and um, many others past and present, which I, I can't name, but they're all fantastic. Many of them are at different teams, leagues and agencies, and they're doing really well. But we collaborate, uh, we talk a lot, we, we communicate on different searches, we work together on projects. And because we're a boutique firm, we can be nimble, right? We can be flexible, we can adapt and adjust on the fly, right? And I mentioned at our peak, at our peak, we were a staff of 10, right? Set 10 recruiters, one of the larger boutique firms, right? Not Corn Ferry, et cetera, but, you know, and, and we had more recruiters than ever, um, but but at now at this time, we're still lean, mean, and that's pandemic related. But um, I, I tell you that what I've loved about our growth is we're no longer just a firm, which sounds terrible and how I'm gonna phrase it, but if you follow me for a second, we're not just working with the Lakers, Cowboys, Bruins, Yankees, those are still great clients of ours. We worked with them dating back to 2007, but it's evolved and it's evolved because of client trust. It's not because, you know, any other, you know, we don't spend a ton on marketing dollars. We, you know, we go to conferences, we, we, you know, we advertise in the SBJ, it's not like that, but um, we've grown beyond the team sports side, right? Esports or sports nonprofits were really successful the last few years, sports technology companies, um, even some agencies, which we talked about uh, prior uh, to the call, um, some, some that you worked with, some that we've come to know large and small, some boutique agencies that we're starting to work with now but different types of organizations and sectors, right? Um, some search firms had a 10 year head start on us, right? And it were more, right? And frankly, there's more firms now than even before. Early in my career, there was two or three firms. Now that number's triple, right? So we have a lot more competition. We got to get creative. Um, we, have, we have to close big searches, but we have to do it well. We can't, we can't fail, right? We, we fail on one search, people are gonna know about it. So, but we know our lane, right? We, we have certain areas of the industry that other search firms are better in. Kudos to them, that's not our, we're gonna stay in our lane. That's what it's come down to. Yeah, and I, and, you know, it's not to really go off the sports topic, but you know, how have you involved as a company, you know, with the changes due to the pandemic the past year, even more than just some of these categories? Yeah, you know, so we've, um, I think, I think one of the things that that we've done is we spent more time reengaging with candidates, right? That that's, you know, we we've we've spent more time, you know, 
I think when there was a pause um, in some of our searches, only for a short period of time, it was it was the spring clearly up until the summer. Talking with a lot more candidates who were active, passive, uh, active or passive job seekers, furloughed, laid off, took salary reductions, a lot more, you know, uh, candidate interaction. Um, but the evolution over the last year, more nonprofit searches in sports, um, more creativity in the types of clients we've worked with, and more board searches. So boards of directors, volunteer board searches, um, committee roles. So searches we've never done before. Um, a few DNI searches uh, as well. So we've grown just beyond, you know, teams and leagues where we're doing sales and marketing searches. Right, that's been the big thing. And you mentioned the word board, and um, you know, I know we had Elisa Padilla on here recently. I know who's somewhat involved with you from a board perspective, but. You know, as a firm, you've had a strong representation around diversity and inclusion and, you know, kind of creating some advisors for the company around that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it started, um, it's a great question. It started in, in, we started at DNI, we called it an educational initiative, and we developed a board of advisors in 2019. It was like the winter, fall or winter of 2019. And we, we did work on, on the conference circuit, right? We've gone to the National Sports Forum and we've presented three or four times on DNI topics. Um, we've been published in the Sports Business. I'm not telling you these accolades, by the way, I'm just kind of giving the backstory, but we've been published in the Sports Business Journal a few times when we've had an article where we've run survey and we had data and we've, uh, we've talked, um, talked with, with, with the journal about different things um, that are tied to DNI, DEI. But in reality, it came down to action, right? Because we can have all the boards of advisors, we can write all the articles, we can present at conferences, and those are all great things, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But it came down to placing females and people of color in roles where we were recruiting for, right? So if you're saying over the last 12, 18 months, 50% of our, uh, uh, of our, our candidates have been diverse placements uh, in all roles, not just DNI roles, sales, marketing, finance, operations, if 50% or more have been diverse, well, okay, great, now it's putting it into action, right? So um, so that's part one of it. We've also just worked on our, our second DNI search. Uh, we're just finishing up. It, it, the offer just got closed and accepted for the VP of uh, DNI for the Denver Broncos. And um, and we have an upcoming. Actually, if I can just self promote a little bit, we have an upcoming DNI uh, presentation because it's a different. It's it's a little different here. We put a panel together for the upcoming National Sports Forum in May that is focusing the conversation on people with disabilities. Um, and, and it's, it's generally a population that doesn't get talked about, right? Because we talk about uh, people of color, ethnicity, gender. Um, truthfully, uh, you know, earlier today we were talking about religion, right? So there's a lot of things that you can, but disabilities often gets overlooked. So we're putting a panel together with, uh, with a few people that are experts in the space that's not our expertise that are gonna talk about, you know, ways to be better at uh, inclusion and belonging uh, and frankly hiring, doing a better job in our industry with people with disabilities. Right. And especially honing in on what their skill sets are and what they're really good at. Right. And giving them equal opportunity to maximize that. Absolutely. So, you know, I know recently maybe some of what having to do with what we just talked about, but also, you know, I just generally talking about things in, in the current landscape of things. You know, you created Prodigy Search Presents, you know, last April already. Crazy. It's been a year um, where you have candid and insightful video conversations with industry leaders, um, you know, talking about adversity and just you know different things going on. Um, you know, what has been one of your big takeaways from building that? 
Yeah, we, you know, we thought about doing this series uh, again. It was a 29. This is kind of like every, I think everybody's had this awakening in 2020 where they thought about a lot of things in 2017, 18 or 19 or whatever. It might be, and they put them to the side, right? They were back burner. They were shelved because business got in the way, right? Their job, their day job got in the way. So it's something we we had didn't have the name Prodigy Search Presents, but we had the idea that we wanted to do a video series of some kind. And when things slowed down, we said, all right, good, let's kick it off now. And what we started with was let's talk with people in the industry that can talk about dealing with not that they had experience dealing with a pandemic, but how do they deal with, you know, challenges and hurdles like this and what are their plans? And so one of our very first ones was Frank Sapovitz and, and Frank wrote a book, um, What to Do When Things Go Wrong. And, and it's not that the whole book is about this, but he talks about the Super Bowl uh, at the Superdome in New Orleans when the lights went out. And, uh, and, and he was working for the NFL at that time. And, and that's why we, we got, we spoke with him, but he was one of the interviewers, but you know, there, there's a lot of the conversations were centered around adaptability, flexibility, nimbleness. Um, they're all critical elements, right? So um, not that anybody was ready to, ready to or ready for, um, to adapt to a pandemic. And anybody that says they were is lying to you, but we did have a recession in 2008, 2009. So there are other like world happenings that you have to adapt and adjust to. And I, I think the takeaways from a lot of the conversations we've had with, um, you know, team people, league people, agency people, pro college, it's really run the gamut, people from golf, people from college sports. There's no fear in trying new things, right? That, you know, that won't work. That won't work. Mentality is unacceptable. We've always done it that, you know, this way unacceptable, right? So I, I think the, you know, Frank's book has a lot of merit to it, but, but the other, you know, kind of key takeaways from those people is try new things, adapt, adjust, you know, have contingencies for your contingencies. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned trying new things, right? Because I've tried to diversify my background over the years and not just be the cookie cutter, hey, you went from here to here to do this to this, you know, I think there's something in, in finding different experience, but, you know, how do you feel now, you know, taking a step back, right, and having more conversations with candidates this year, um, you know, how do you feel about other industry experiences and, and maybe learning in different areas of the revenue business? You know, how do you think that's going to help people now with jobs starting to come out a little more fluidly? Yeah, well, you know, I, I keep on thinking about our industry being much better. And this, listen, Brett, this, this goes down to search firms. Self search firms need to be held accountable too. That's Prodigy. It's all the other competitors that we work with um, need to be held accountable as well. When we talk about DNI, DNI also does need to refer to people's experiences, their education, their skill sets. DNI isn't just, well, that person is a person of color or a female, or here's their religion or they're disabled, whatever it is. That, you know, that that's that's the definition that is very critical. I'm not putting that to the side, but our industry and search firms as well need to be better. And, and we work on this every day. And looking at candidates that have different backgrounds, they come from Fortune 500s. They worked at a small mom and pop shop. Um, they worked at the, the college world. They want to transfer over to the, the pro sports or vice versa. Um, you know, I've had some wins on that front. I've had some losses, but I've learned from the losses too. Right, bringing somebody over from radio and TV to a team, uh, bringing somebody over from a Fortune 500 to to a league office, whatever that may be. We win some of those. We lose some of them. Right, and. And I think I always, again, I always defer to transferable skills. If you can go on an interview and sell somebody on how the network you have or the connections or relationships you have or the things you've done in that job transfer over, right? So we did a security search in 2018 or 17 for Kroenke. It was somebody that would be leading all the security efforts for all the venues in Denver. So the Pepsi Center, Dick's Sporting Goods, um, all the all the Kroenke venues in Denver. And 
And we put candidates out. I think maybe a third of the candidates we had were from sports, right? The other, the other two thirds were from every other industry. You could think they had FBI backgrounds, they had Homeland Security, they worked at hotels and casinos, convention centers. Um, and those people taught us a lot about, we're, we weren't the experts, but we learned a lot from them saying, you definitely don't need to work in sports to do this job at Cronky, right? So um, some industry sectors are better at doing that. Um, you can bring a CFO in from wherever to be a CFO in sports. Um, I, I think we need to be better in areas like ticket sales and corporate sales in particular. I'm just picking on those two. And, I feel, and those are some of our greatest friends and colleagues, some of which you and I know very well in saying, okay, you did exit at industry X, Y, or Z. We think you can bring that over to, to what we do here. Um, and we're, we're trying. We need to get better at it. We're trying. And, you know, I know with the evolution of everything going on, and I, I've asked you this before, but, you know, there's some new ways of interviewing and new ways of qualifying people. And one of the things I noticed recently, you know, a lot of the companies are doing one-way interviews, giving you an opportunity to almost give your elevator pitch right to a computer and, and basically probably go out more to the masses than having five or 10 intimate conversations. You know, how do you feel about that? And what opportunities that create maybe to include more candidates than normal? Yeah, video, listen, video interviews, it, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because I, I, like you, I've kind of had this, I go back and forth on it. So I'm a little bit of a flip-flopper on it, but I think there's a lot of value of, in video interviews. We can be a lot more inclusive. We can include a lot more candidates uh, with our clients because it's a bit, listen, you don't have to fly somebody in anymore. So the cost of flying them in, hotel, rental car, um, versus doing, I, I can do that with two finalists, but I can also video interview five or six of them. Now, your other part of it, which is the one where you're kind of recording yourself, either answering questions or giving a pitch or presentation, tremendous amount of value, right? Because you can save it to the cloud, you can put it on Dropbox, you can send it out, send a link to somebody, you can record on, on Skype or Teams or, or, um, or Zoom, and you can send it out to people. There's a ton of value to that, right? Now it becomes part of somebody's portfolio rather than just a uh, a video interview that's not recorded and it's you know awkward because you don't know where to look on the camera. I mean, you can practice it over and over again. Um, I think I might have mentioned this in prior correspondence, but I didn't. This was done. Some colleges and universities do that quite a bit, where you know Johnson and Johnson will go to go to University X, Y, and Z and say, you know, we need candidates that are have business degrees or engineering degrees, and that university has video recording uh, platforms where they do three three questions, right? Here are the three questions. You'll have a minute to answer each of them, and that gets recorded and sent over to from the university to you know Johnson Johnson or another another Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 brand. So the video interviews um, are, and whether they're recorded like like we're talking about now, or they're actually interfacing with people, um, they're a daunting task. You got to know how to do it well. You got to know where to look. You know all those typical things, dressing appropriately. All the things we do in person need to be translated. That's the biggest thing. Need to be translated to a video interview. And, you know, you know, we're on the cusp, right? We're now, we're, we're April 1st right now. This is, you know, coming out for everyone to hear, you know, Q2 things are in full swing. You know, outside of the DNI, we talked about what other um, opportunities or verticals within the industries right now, do you see roles, you know, maybe being more relevant in, in being available? Yeah, I, I think there's um, people that look at roles in a, um, the cashless, uh, the hygiene venue, security venue operations. I think, listen, revenue is always going to be king. So now you're going to look at people that are creative revenue drivers, right? That are going to look at it and they look at that and analytics. They use some of the old school approaches as well, but uh, I think creative revenue generators uh, as well. Um, I, I actually think there's a, there, there, sports nonprofits are, are very much overlooked. Doesn't need to be just Olympic properties or national governing bodies, but sports nonprofits, I know this doesn't go down to your, your core question, which is, I could tell you there's going to be a million marketing jobs. I don't know that to be true, right? I, there's still 
2021 and 2022 still could be present some hurdles for the cost, what is viewed as cost centers, even though that's not true and I don't view them that way. Um, you know, some of those roles might take a while to come back, unfortunately. Um, but sports nonprofits is a sector of our industry, but so is esports, so is sports gambling, right? Where there's just follow what's, you know, drone racing league, follow what's what's happening, what's up and coming. Um, there's some risk reward involved in, involved in some of that too, though, right? Do you want to go to XFL part three? It could be amazing. It could be incredible. The Rocket, the Rocket do amazing things with that. But there's risk with some of these up and comers, right? I mean, to 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 conversations I've had with you and some other individuals, right? People that see companies like Barstool and DraftKings. I mean, there's a ton of jobs out there, a ton of opportunity, but there's risk. There's risk involved in them because they haven't been around for 100 years, right? But you know, that's just you know, not everybody has a chance to work for the Yankees. Like it just that just is what it is. And my last question for you, you know, if you could give a piece of advice or two to those wanting to get in the industry or, or even grow in the industry for that matter, you know, what would Mark Rest Jr. tell the world? You know, getting into the, I actually have an easy one for getting in the industry. I'll have to ponder for a second as I'm answering the question on those that are in the industry, but those that are looking to get into the industry, um, it doesn't need to only be through interning in sports or working in ticket sales and sports. Those are still great ways. There's still phenomenal ways to do it, right? But you can also get into our industry through doing other things, right? Um, and, and other areas of our industry. Um, you know, data and analytics, sure, that's an area where you can focus on, you can start there. Um, but I think thinking outside the box in terms of just interning, um, instead of, if you don't have opportunities to intern, do project work for them, volunteer for them. Um, if things are still virtual, you know, listen, I hate to say free work, but free work is different. I know there's a lot of conversation about intern, unpaid internships, so I'm not saying that, but if there's an opportunity that you can be, present yourself with to do a digital project or a presentation or something where you're lending a little bit of time rather than, okay, I need to, I need to relocate to Philadelphia to do an unpaid internship with the Phillies, pay for my own apartment, pay for my own transportation, and it's unpaid. And no, no, stay where you are at the university where you're at or stay at home and do, do a project for them, right? Or volunteer for them. Um, and I don't think, again, I, I hate to go against the, the norm, which is you got to work your way up through inside sales and ticket sales. Still might be the easiest way, but it shouldn't be the only way. Um, that's for those looking to break in from scratch. Those that are in it, um, listen, you, you're a great example of this because you and I have talked about this a lot. You've talked with colleagues of mine here at Prodigy about this a lot. And I think you give me too much credit for this because it's less about me, but I think people that are continuing to learn doesn't need to be about getting your master's or PhD, but continuing to get certifications or reading more, attending conferences virtual or otherwise learning more, adding to your skill set, you know, not just kind of status quo, right? So learning more, reading more, and, and adding to your repertoire. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you coming and spending some time with us today. This was awesome, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.